the reason why we cannot make the same trade-off of control and efficiency versus flexibility and adaptability and speed is because the world is accelerating. And the world is accelerating because of this whole, what I would call, sequence of digital technologies. It's not one technology. It's not that a change happened and we've got to get used to it. And then once we've adapted, we're done. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello. I am delighted today to be talking to the world's leading expert on digital transformation. Today, I'm talking with and learning from David Rogers. David is a member of the faculty at Columbia Business School and the author of five fabulous books. But his landmark bestseller was the Digital Transformation Playbook. This was the first book on digital transformation and put the topic on the map. Now, it feels to me that digital transformation is one of those things that people say... And the definition that different people have of this phrase seems to be slightly mixed and muddled. So today it's great to be hearing from the man who coined the phrase about what it means, how to do it, how to do it well, how to get it wrong. David refers to it as DX. And he says, look, it's not about technology, it's about strategy. It's about leadership and it's about new ways of thinking. And he's done this work for many international businesses as a practitioner. So he's worked with Google and Microsoft and Citigroup and Visa and HSBC and Unilever and Procter and Gamble and, 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 and. He delivers keynote speeches around the world and he writes for the New York Times, Financial Times, Wall Street Journal and The Economist. So top geezer. Now, what we're going to talk about today is the essence of digital transformation, what he's found from his studies. And he's realized that you have to take a customer-centric approach. You have to think about these things in terms of value to customers. You've got to think about data as a strategic asset. You have to innovate your business model, and you have to do that rapidly, be prepared to take risks. You have to think about the ecosystem, and you've got to think about collaboration as part of your digital transformation. You've got to be able to co-create with both traditional and new players. Digital marketing is obviously been with us for a while, but still there are many things that are now transitioning to digital and where digital marketing plays a role. Risk and security often hampers new ways of working and digital transformation is not alone in this. And then there's leadership and governance. How do you have to structure your organization? How do you have to make sure that the digital transformation efforts that you put in place have CEO support so that they will succeed? Fantastic conversation with David. I really enjoyed it. I'm sure you will too. I'm David Rogers. Uh, I'm an author, uh, faculty at Columbia Business School, and advisor to senior business leaders. And my passion is helping established businesses figure out how do they transform themselves 
to really thrive and grow in the digital era. What size of businesses are you thinking of when you say established? So that's a really interesting question. You know, I, I my last book I wrote several years ago, and I it was the first book on the topic of digital transformation. And I sort of drew this dividing line in time, actually. Uh, and I sort of said, well, this is about organizations that were established before the internet started. Right. Uh, and there was a lot of merit to that because what I was observing at the time, I was really focused then on sort of strategic mindset and where how companies saw themselves and saw who their customers were and what their competition was, things like that. And I found that a lot of businesses were established in this one environment, we could call it the pre-digital era, and they sort of grew up and they uh, developed all these, you know, a sense of themselves. What's their product? What's their market? Who's their customer? What's the needs they meet? What's their competition? What's their industry? And all these things. And basically the world had changed and they didn't realize it. Or maybe sort of abstractly they did, but they didn't understand all the blind spots that were holding them back, all these kind of unchecked assumptions they were making about their business. So that sort of, if that's your lens, that sort of makes a, a pretty good sort of dividing line. It's like, okay, did you sort of emerge and develop kind of your skills, your sort of intuition? It's sort of the equivalent of a, of a human growing up and sort of, you know, become moving from childhood to adulthood. You lose some neuroplasticity, but you sort of gain all this kind of intuitive sense about things that you're expert in. Uh, and that can be a big problem then if you're suddenly thrown in a different context and all your kind of assumptions are, are wrong. Since then, I started working more and more with these companies trying to go through this journey, right? who were really rethinking, okay, I don't care what industry I'm in. Maybe I'm in journalism. Maybe I'm in energy services. Maybe I'm an industrial manufacturer of gases. Maybe I'm a retailer around the world. And I'm trying to sort of rethink where does the landscape look ahead for us in the digital era with new business models emerging, new capabilities, new entrants. And I start to get a sense of where we need to go and some of the opportunities we need to pursue. So it turned out what's hard about doing that. When I started, I'd ask folks, you know, I'd ask CEOs, you know, what do you see as the biggest, you know, obstacle to your, again, what we were calling digital transformation, and they would say almost to a to a to a person, uh, they'd say one of three things. They'd say tech, the technology is hard, uh, I don't have enough resources and money, uh, or I don't have enough support from the CEO if they weren't the CEO themselves. That was what everyone thought was the hard part. Now nobody says that. Right. I never get that answer. Is that because it wasn't true? Yes. That's what you thought. That's what you anticipated. Until you'd actually done it, that is what looked like the hard part. Fascinating. And then once you actually did it, you found out, not that those things are easy or irrelevant, but it turned out there were much harder things. And so that's what kind of led, led me to my work at the last several years in my new book. Because it turns out what's really hard and what everybody says now is the organization. It's, it's people, it's change, it's culture. People use different language, but it's about getting the organization to actually change. So it's like, once you even understand, as hard as it is, that kind of that kind of strategic reset and start to see where you need to be going differently and really start to think differently about your business, it's very hard to actually get the organization moving in that new direction. So that sort of that became the focus of my work for the last several years, helping problem companies solve those those problems uh, around digital transformation. And what that led me to, A, the, the book that I, I finished and is, is, is now coming out, it, to sort of crystallize that all together. But 
It also led to a slight redefinition of what do we mean or who do we mean when we talk about digital transformation. Because what I found was I kept having these companies come in to my seminars and workshops or, or, or client engagements who were, this is the minority, but they'd show up alongside these big old established, you know, the classic legacy BMF, and they'd and, and, I, and I'd ask, go around the room, well, what's your organization? And their business was like 10 years old. They were like totally what we would call digital native, if you mean, maybe 15 years old. But they were started after the internet. But I said, oh, that's interesting. Why are you here? And they'd say, everything you're talking about is everything we are struggling with. And that was sort of a, a, sort of a, a head spinner for me. And I realized that when you're talking about the organizational change piece, it's not. It's really fundamentally, do you have an established business? Do you have an organization that already has a set of customers, has a set of products, has a core business that you've built your org chart around, you've got your distribution partners, all these things are in place. And as you start to scale, and those things are, of course, vital, the more they become established, the harder it is for you to maintain the flexibility to keep changing as an organization, to keep pursuing opportunities that may be close to your core, but also others that are farther from the core. Opportunities for digital innovation that, that is pretty straightforward and kind of low-hanging fruit and things that are much riskier, much more uncertain. These mid-sized businesses, these relatively young businesses that are fast growing, they're facing the exact same challenge. So is it just change or is it, I mean, is it organizational change? You're doing digital transformation because that's there's a sort of a continuation from your earlier work, or is it? And I think about efficiency and innovation on a continuum. And I see organ. I don't. Ah, okay. Well, that'd be interesting. I'd be keen to dive into that because often what I see is that maybe up to about a hundred people, businesses are still young enough that they still have some innovation muscle, and they get past a certain point and they go, "Now we need to be. Now we need to be more efficient, and process becomes more important than change." And therefore, and therefore, they start to develop this inability to that plasticity starts to erode. So, why am I wrong? Yeah. Well, first, I, I would agree with most of what you said. Uh, I would just here change the first characterization of sort of you know antipodes versus two sides of the same challenge. So, I absolutely agree. Scale is critical to this. What I've seen is what I call complexity. So, this all gets harder as organizations become more complex change becomes harder. So the, the, the continuity, you know, on the one hand, I, I definitely have some people who like spend a lot of time with me in their businesses and, and they come away and they say, really, your work, David, is all about transformation. Like digital is, you know, sure, but it's any, this is applies to any transformation. And I think that's true. However, although these are fundamental issues and fundamental fr frameworks and tools and approaches that we can use to solve all these problems, whether it's a digital issue or not, or, or that's the, what's driving your transformation. The fact is, you know, we live in the here and now, and we are all doing change in the context that we're in, whatever our particular business and our, our, our people and our history and our customers. And right now the world is, the reason why this whole change issue and this need for organizations to become much more flexible and to not you be run the way we ran businesses in the 20th century, it's not just kind of by happenstance. Right. The reason why we cannot make the same trade-off of control and efficiency versus flexibility and adaptability and speed is because the world is accelerating. And the world is accelerating because of this whole, 
what I would call sequence of digital technologies. It's not one technology. It's not that a change happened and we've got to get used to it. And then once we've adapted, we're done and we can enter a steady state, right? It's not like there was the internet and then things stopped. Okay, then there was mobile computing and now things stopped. No, every few years we have another... It's when you have a technology that doesn't just make an impact, but it sets up, tees up a whole wave of more technologies. Like that's why smartphones were so impactful because it wasn't just the phone. It was how it unleashed and sort of teed up all these additional technical breakthroughs and new business models and so forth. I think that's what we're going to see with, you know, both generative and predictive AI we're still seeing, you know, that just keeps coming. And so it's, the two are not irrelevant. The point is, the digital, the dynamics of the digital era are what is pushing us and raising the bar and say, look, what we thought was a flexible organization 20 years ago is an inflexible dinosaur stuck in the mud getting sucked into the La Brea tar pit of today. So that is like the context in which we have to become much more adaptive. When you look back, is it slightly depressing that the rate of expiration of FTSE 100 or Dow Jones top 100 companies seems to be accelerating as well. I, you know, you, you here's your here's your life's work, and yet companies still seem to be inflexible and unable to change. No, first of all, I'm just sort of an optimist by nature. So you know, when I look at the numbers, you know, to put a number, I mean, the FTSE that the those metrics are always turn out to be a little the sort of you know how many companies what's the turnover rate within the top x biggest companies by some measure it's kind of hard to actually spell that out very cleanly but to pick a simpler metric you know there's if you look at companies who are embarking or have been working on some kind of digital transformation in the last several years and there've been multiple surveys by all the big consulting firms and they all show 70 plus 80 plus percent failure rate Meaning companies are themselves reporting, we have not succeeded. We have not achieved what we wanted through this big allocation of resources and this big sort of strategic effort. Now, some people would look at that and say, oh my gosh, it's, this is terrible. I look at it and say, wow, that's 20, 30% of companies are succeeding. That's like a lot we can learn from. And it's great. And, and it turns out that these the success stories come in many different shapes and sizes and different industries and around the world. So there is a lot to learn. So, you know, I'm uh, I'm very optimistic that, and what I'm also optimistic, maybe this is more important, is I have, as I have, you know, both worked directly, but also just researched and studied many, many different companies in that sort of minority uh, that are successfully really transforming themselves uh, in meaningful ways is that there's a pattern. It's not, it's not just random. It's not like, well, you probably, probably won't work. And, you know, it's just like a shot in the dark. No, they are doing certain, they're all doing certain things. Um, and so that's why I'm optimistic about it. And honestly, I don't mind turnover. You know, I, I'm a believer in, and, you know, creative destruction and, you know, some of the basic ideas that, you know, markets work best when, look, one of the main things I beat the dead horse with talking to executives is you've got to get much, much, much better at shutting yeah. things down. So I have no problem with with turnover rate, right? As long as you're as long as the net effect is that new things are coming to the fore and growing, that's positive. That's vitality. So what are some of these things that when you look at the 25% success rate that people are doing time and time again? Sure. So that's that's really kind of been the focus of my so the new book, which is called The Digital Transformation Roadmap is, you know, it's not a set of like IKEA instructions, do step one and step two and step three. There's so many people have asked me for this after the last book. I love the book. Just tell me like, what do I do first, second, third, and fourth, right? 
So level set, that's not what this book offers. But it says there are five things you have to keep doing iteratively and doing really well, and you're not going to get any of them right out the gate, which is why you keep doing them iteratively. That's one of the things I learned. Everyone who's been working at innovation in the last you know, 20 years talks about or understands that innovation happens through an iterative process. Uh, that what I've learned is that organizational change has to happen the same way. It has to be an iterative change. You can't plan this whole big, all these companies that have tried to do these big bang top down, we're moving everybody to agile squads starting March 1st, but this is a disaster, right? You got to do this change iteratively. So the five things you've got to do iteratively uh, or, or that the companies who, who, who do this right are doing, uh, first is it's about vision, right? So they really define a shared vision that is unique to the firm. Right. So that's two things that most companies fail at. One is, I, I mean, a lot of CEOs are honest. They'll tell me, look, you ask three people in my company, what does digital transformation mean for us? You're going to get three different answers. Right. Like we, we don't have like a common shared understanding. Um, and it's also got to be unique to the business. So it can't be a bunch of language about, well, this is what's going on in AI and disruption and blockbuster and Netflix and yada, yada, and sort of generic things about what's going on in the world. It's got to get much more specific and granular to your particular, okay, we're a professional services business in Southeast Asia serving you know, family-owned enterprises, right? What's going on in that world? Right? How is that world changing in the, in the digital era? How are our customers' needs you know, rapidly evolving? What are the new entrants and changing, you know, capabilities and what does our landscape look like? So that's the first thing that most companies don't do, but those who are doing a great job all do. So they do have that sort of, that kind of shared vision. I think I heard you say that we're obsessing about the customer's problem, yeah. which is very different to a lot of organizations where they obsess about their solution. And actually, and actually that's one of the sort of historic things is people are in love with their solution and the world changes and they remain in love with their solution rather than the customer's problem. Yeah, I mean, I know you you like to ask people for for a reading suggestion. I'll toss, I'll give an early, you know, one uh, here. Uh, um, it's not a book, but you know, Ted. Everyone, if you haven't read it in the, recently, go read. You know, Ted Levitt's Marketing Myopia, the article uh, that he wrote seventy years, I think, plus ago, and which talks about this dynamic. It's just that success. It doesn't just breed complacency. It's specifically that success breeds a mindset. It's sort of inevitable where you start to see the future through the lens of the past, through what worked in the past. And you define your business in terms of the products that you have uh, sold, right? Your solutions, as you say, rather than defining your business in terms of the needs you have met. And if you define it in terms of the needs that you have met and do meet, it's much easier to then see how the needs are changing of your customers in the market. And therefore, that allows you to be much more open-minded and flexible. That's actually the second thing of my five. I call it picking the problems that matter most, right? So that's and this is a real discipline uh, in, in in effective companies, and it's not just something happening at the top in some sort of chief strategy officer retreat. It's actually something happening at every level of the organization. It's that people are constantly focusing on, you know, what are the problems that matter most to our business right now, and using that to really kind of define strategy. You cannot do innovation in a vacuum inside an established business. It can't just be blue sky thinking and oh, this would be a great idea. It has to be rooted 
in the organization itself. So that's really what that, that piece is all about. It's about picking those problems and, and con continuously sort of reassessing them and, re under uh, and deepening your understanding of them so that you are, you know, as the entrepreneurs love to say, you know, and I love to repeat, you know, fall in love with the problem, not the solution. Okay. And so that's the, that's the sort of what's the existential threat? What's the threat facing us? That problem is internal rather than external. Is the problem internal versus external? Yeah. That it, the most, I suppose, no, it might be external. It might be external. It, 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 it depends on the circumstances the firm is in. It, it depends. Okay. Right, right. And, and, and to do strategy, you have to be, the two inputs are continuous learning. And one is you have to have continuous uh, external knowledge and learning, always learning about what's happening with the customer, the market, competitors new business models, new technologies. But it's also got to be a really powerful internal knowledge. And, and really, that's the hardest part, is being really candid and honest and learning and identifying what is unique in, about your organization versus just things. There are a lot of things you're good at that are probably just table stakes in your industry, but what is actually distinct. Um, and the companies who do those two things well are able to do strategy well and pick problems to solve that are not just like in theory or in principle or generically a good problem to solve. Like, oh, someone should go build a solution to this. That, that's great. And if you're an entrepreneur, that's enough, right? Just starting from scratch. But if you're an established business, you've got to pick problems that are particularly relevant to you. You've got to say, we have some right to win here, right? There's Not only is this a good problem to solve, it's something that we, Walmart, we, New York Times, we, Air Liquide, we, whatever the business is, we have a particular reason why we ought to be able to do this better than others. Okay. What's the next one? Well, the next, so the third is really, it's about experimentation, right? And, and what I call, you know, getting really good at validating new ventures uh, and sort of building that muscle of uh, knowing how do you run teams and projects that are, how do you embark with a tremendous degree of humility, which is an undervalued leadership trait, I find. Great leaders are very clear and upfront about how little they know. And how do you then <clears throat> go about a methodical process of uh, validating all the questions and hypotheses about any new opportunity, growth opportunities you're pursuing. And to bring it back to the earlier point, this is the same method. I mean, what I've developed, the, the, the methodology for this is really the same whether you are optimizing an existing part of your business. You know, you're, you've got a warehouses, fulfillment centers on the e-commerce side of your, you know, retail operation. And you've got a team whose whole job is just every day to get up and figure out how do we improve the picking rate of products into packaging. That's, you know, kind of classic product management. You've got a persistent problem to solve. It's the same validation, same questions you have to validate as if you are building a totally new business model, right? Some new uh, uh, new growth engine from scratch. Now, the, the process is going to look different because in the one case, you already do know quite a bit. You've got a lot of direct first-party data, first-hand knowledge, and so you're starting with fewer hypotheses, but it's it's the same validation process. I see often people look at those innovation things and they are obsessed about applying, you know, what's our return on investment going to be? Or when can we expect this to be launched? And it's like, well, we don't know what we're doing yet. Like we haven't even started, like we're making it up. How could we possibly know? And they say, and the people go, well, if we don't know what we're doing, why are we doing it? Yeah. 
Yeah. So that's that's the big problem. That that's exactly what I found is so hard. It's not that hard for an established company to say, okay, I want to innovate differently. Let's send some people for a you know a lean startup workshop or some design thinking training or agile or something and get some of these methods. But then you kind of hit this wall, exactly as you said. It's like, okay, before you get started, I want to know what's the total addressable market and what's the the ROI if this pans out and you know what's the business case. And that's totally backwards. Um, it's a br- it's a critical question, absolutely essential question, and you you've got to start getting some data on that before you make put any serious money into this, right? But it is the wrong, absolute wrong question to ask at the very beginning. So you have to link this to totally breaking apart the way you fund, right? Resources have to be done on an iterative fashion, and you I always say green light as many ideas uh, as possible with as little resources as possible. So you kind of flip the script at the start and then you need a sequence. So that's that's one of the things I've been sort of working on the most is figuring out how do you sequence all these questions that that just come up if you're doing customer development. You know, if you look at the work of Steve Blank and Ox Osterwalder and Rita McGrath and so many others, they spell out this idea that there's all these questions you've got to verify. And what I find is companies and teams get kind of tripped up on what comes first. So those financially driven firms, they all want to start with, well, let's figure out the financials first. And that you can't do that because you don't even know what you're building. Then you've got sort of engineering driven firms and they come in and they say, no, no, no we're, we're going to build one working prototype, right? We got to see if the technology works because, and they're right, if the technology doesn't work, you've got a problem, but that's still the wrong place to start. So they say, well, let's build the whole thing. Just give us like 18 months. And like $300,000, $500,000, we'll build like one working version of it, give it to one customer, and then we'll start to learn things. Uh, okay. Then you've got the sort of marketing kind of driven firms, and they say, no, 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 before we build the expensive prototype, let's just create a bunch of wireframes, right? We kind of know the customer's problem. Uh, let's just sort of, let's let's make a bunch of different kind of wireframes, mock-ups of what might, uh, what a cool, interesting solution might look like and see what generates, you know, customer demand, product market fit, dry testing, and so forth. That's getting closer, but the problem is there's actually one thing you have to answer first before you do any of that, which is what problem are we solving, right? That is the first stage. Are we solving a real problem for a genuine customer? And almost everybody overlooks that. And the best innovation teams always start with that. It doesn't have to be, that's not like a year-long investigation, but you've got to spend at least a you know a few weeks if it's a big thing and if you're super lean and fast maybe several days you got to spend some time actually talking to customers and validating what the heck is their problem right what are they doing right now if it is a problem for them what's their current working alternative right is that good enough or not you could be you can spend so much time trying to solve a problem that doesn't really matter to the customer as much as you think it does so that's kind of one of the things I've learned, which is really critical and part, part of this, again, uh, this model I developed called the four stages of validation. All those questions have to be answered. It's not, the finance people are not wrong. Yes, you need to know the total addressable market. Yes, you've got to know the unit economics. Yes, you've got to know the profit margin at scale. All these things are critical, but you can't ask those first. If you don't know what you're building because you don't know what problem you're solving, then any attempt to sort of game out the economics of it is at this point just pulling numbers out of your, you know what, you know, it's, it's, Nothing. I see people say things like, well, if this can't get to a 10 million or a hundred million, it's not worth doing. But you don't know, you don't know what that's going to be until you've started to learn like, A, what problem are you solving? B, what solution 
does the customer seem to have some interest in and see as like a reason why they'd actually change their behavior versus the competitive offerings? See, can you even deliver that? Like, what would it take to deliver that? And even the most basic, skinny, slimmest, you know, what I would call uh, first first stage of a, uh, a working, a functional MVP. And then you can start to say, okay, and again, this is not years and, and gobs of money, but this is maybe a few months in. Now you start to see the contours and you're like, okay, what are we actually talking about when we say, is this a $10 million or $100 million opportunity? Now you have kind of the contours of the opportunity and you can start to actually test that question in a meaningful way with some valid data and not just a bunch of you know smoke and mirrors. It's a great question. It's just to add, people ask it at the wrong time. It seems to me people really want to work on one thing. And what you said earlier was green light as many things as possible. And what you're saying is you have to go and seek early validation on lots and lots of things. And some of them will then filter through and they'll get validated and validated and validated. And, and keep and adapt too as you're, you're validating. You're, you're all, it's never going to end up as you started, but exactly. Yeah. Well, and, and do, you, do you think the looking at sort of startups in the VC world is a useful sort of metaphor for this? Yeah, it's not just a metaphor. It's a it's sort of a template. I mean, that's sort of the fourth kind of discipline or, or kind of uh, uh, step of this process, which I focused on is how do you how do you rethink the governance inside established businesses? And the basic principle is: look, this is not about throwing out everything you've done before, and we're all going to just be a bunch of startup folks running wild in a hundred billion dollar company doing our own thing. It's about being flexible. It's about saying we're not going to apply the same rules for budgeting and resource allocation and people and KPIs and metrics and uh, and compliance and, and and so forth and approvals and project sponsorship that we do for our core business that we know really well. We're not going to just carry over all those governance rules to you know new innovation opportunities. And as you start to define and lay out what I call this broadly three paths to growth, but whatever you know structures you're creating around them you need to look at these things very differently. And particularly when you're dealing with any opportunity that's got greater uncertainty to it, that's what I would call a path two or path three opportunity. The best template is, is VC's, uh, VC funding. Now it's a little different inside an organization, but you're applying the same sort of uh, uh, model of financing, which is iterative and exponential. And you're applying the same kind of metrics, which is not one set of metrics. The big shift is not which metrics you're using. You know, your your main business, you have KPIs, meaning they like stay in place. And we always know what are the key numbers we're looking for as we run this part of the company. With a new opportunity, they're continually changing. It's an iterative process. What metric you need to measure as you go through the four stages keeps changing, even within one of the stages. So the metrics are changing, the finance is happening iteratively, the teams are composed and are governed much more like a startup. They have much more autonomy, much more uh, accountability, and they're much more, certainly if it's getting serious, they need to become single-threaded, which means they're doing nothing but this. So it's a very different, It's a, and again, all of these things, it's an adaptation of the model you see in startups and, and VCs. And I see one of the, I suppose, the, the, other, the flip side of narrowing too early into one project is that then people end up with zombies. Yeah. You know, how do I kill this? You know, we spent $3 million and three years on this. We just have to keep going until we get out the other side. And they just 
pouring money into a pit. It, it's a disaster. And, you know, sometimes it's called pet project. You've got something that, you know, a lot of organizations, how do things get, get greenlit, right? It's a, it's a single executive sponsor. That's always a, a, a dangerous scenario because the best, smartest uh, 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 single executive, if they are making the decision by themselves to sponsor a given project, Inevitably, they are putting too much. I think this was a term you heard. You, I heard from you. Emotional currency. They're putting their credibility. They're aligning it with their reputation. They're like giving it their stamp of approval. All of a sudden, it becomes much harder for them to objectively decide. Hey, is it time to to, to shut this thing down? To wind it down? To to reallocate the resources to another opportunity? So you just set up all these reasons why it's much, 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 much harder to do the right thing if you have these sort of like individual sponsored projects. So that's why the governance process has to. To start from that green green lighting stage, and you have a different mechanism uh, than that to, to green light projects. And then, how do you kill them? Yeah, well, that's that's what I call smart shutdowns. You've got to get really methodical about it. There's a lot of things. I mean, part of it is process. It's really only part. So part of it is saying, you know, look, you you need to have. Well, you know, what I would call an innovation board, a growth board, innovation councils, different terms, but basically it's a standing group that is assigned to oversee a certain portfolio uh, of uh, innovation, you know, efforts, venture teams, I would call them, that are working on somewhat equivalent. You don't want to be comparing apples and oranges. So you don't have people who are investing in like paying down technical debt in the core uh, of the business should not be competing for resources with people who are trying to find a new business model, right? So you've got a portfolio of sort of similar opportunities. You've got the board who's looking at it. They're green lighting. They are doing the iterative funding. And every time they meet, the whole point of iterative funding is you don't do this long, long wait and lots of business case development and planning and planning and planning. And then you get like an annual budget. No, you get a really small amount of resources for a short period of time. And then you've got to come back. And before you start, you're told what data to bring back. Right. And then you bring that data back and you look at it and have a discussion and decide, do we, do we release another tranche, another round? So you keep having, and the whole point is every time you meet, the question is, do we shut it down or not? Right. So it just becomes, it's like a very everyday conversation. And, and, that, and that venture council has a budget. So every time they've only got a certain amount of money. So they've got to, if they want to invest more in another than one, they've got to shut another one down. So it forces them to make these decisions. Yeah, and this is critical. They and the teams both have to have that mindset. So part of that is, you know, I find a helpful tool is, is a venture backlog, you know. So having a set of ideas teed up that you're like, yeah, this is this is strategically relevant and like an interesting opportunity. It's certainly worth at least spending a little time on and a little resource, you know, doing a first green light. But we're not going to green light everything day one because we've only got X many people. So they're in the that's in the backlog. It's like, okay, the next idea in the hopper. That makes it much easier. The thing about that is then when you disband a team, it's not like, ah, you know, better luck next time. Too bad that one didn't work out. We'll call you when we got something for you. And everybody's like, ah, you know, I did bad and we, we didn't succeed. And now what am I doing? What's going to happen next? And they're feeling anxiety. You're immediately at reallocating people and resources. You're saying, okay, we're shutting down this. We're going to have you guys work on this next. Sometimes it's just a different solution to the same problem. It's like, well, we had this other idea. What if we came at this from a totally different angle and we did this, you know, this instead of that? Well, let's, let's, let's validate that option. So having those processes in place make this much easier. Uh, and then it's also got to become, it's also got to be baked into the the sort of the, the mindset and the culture and the conversation and that you're not evaluating. Judging people is distinct. 
of course, people have to be held accountable, but it is a distinct process from decisions on, on, uh, on actual ventures and whether you shut them down or not. Very good. David, that's brilliant. What is it you know now you wish you'd known earlier? Well, I think I wish I'd known earlier that when you're talking about strategy and innovation and you know, reinventing a business for the digital era, I took, I sort of accepted the unstated assumption, which is that these important questions are decided at the top. Right. Strategy is something that's done and set at the top of the organization and then is sort of trickled down. Right? Deciding, you know, how we are going to transform for the digital era. This is a job of a chief digital officer and a CEO working hand in hand, and then they set the course and, and make these big decisions that others are going to carry out. What I've learned over the years is that's not the case. Uh, particularly if org- as organizations need to move more quickly. The only way that they can move quickly and really drive change at scale across these complex organizations is if things are not all coming from the top. You need to have what I would call a more bottom-up uh, organization, which means that leaders are always, it's not that you are a flat, you know, there's no hierarchy, right? You do have you know, in any large organization, some kind of hierarchy and organizational levels. But leaders are always looking to push decision-making down to the lowest level possible for each decision, right? And ideas and information and learning are constantly coming from the bottom up and from the outside in, from every, uh, from out external partners as well. And new ideas and change and innovation and strategy are originating at every level of the organization whether it's an individual team, whether it's the head of a function like HR or marketing, whether it's a specific business unit, whether it's the whole enterprise, at every single level, that is where where strategy is happening. That's where innovation is happening. That's where cultural change is happening. Very good. And you mentioned marketing myopia is something to read. What else have you, what else should people pick up and... So, yeah, I know you like to ask folks for like a reading suggestion. And so, so that was, I guess, my sort of businessy reading suggestion, I would say. But I, I know you also sometimes just ask is, you know, what's a, what's a book that really shaped your thinking and you maybe recommend to others? Beautiful, beautiful short book I read several years ago and, you know, still think about you know, all the time. It's called Seeing is Forgetting the Name of the Thing One Sees. Uh, it's a book by Lawrence Weschler, and it's a book about art. It's a sort of a biography of the artist Robert Irwin, but it uses Irwin's own work and some other related artists, but really just looking at Irwin's story to sort of reshift, really shift our thinking about what art is. And art is not really the object. Um, it's not, it is that interaction, kind of the interaction field between the, the person who is experiencing it and the object and the artist who had created the object in that moment of, of interaction. And that sounds kind of abstract, but that's actually what Irwin's work is all about. Some of it, it's so disembodied. It's hard. You, you hear it described and it doesn't even sound like there's anything there. And then you go see the piece and you're like, oh, wow. Somehow it's like he put a piece of, you know, duct tape on this wall and he drew a shadow here and he changed, moved a light. And the whole room looks totally different from my perspective as I walk into it than it did before. It's all about it's uh, uh, that experience and how we perceive things. Um, so it's a really it's a really beautiful book and it, wonderful writing and it really helps you sort of get access to some ideas that I think apply to a lot of things. Besides, you know, I was never a visual artist. I was a, I've been a music composer and a, you know obviously a business writer and, and professor. And it's just a lovely book for for any of those things. David, that's absolutely brilliant. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. 
It's been my pleasure, Dominic. Thanks for having me on. We'll have to do it again sometime. That'd be marvellous. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week. 